Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hello. Today, we're speaking with the extremely gifted writer, Yah Jesse. Yah's debut novel, Homegoing, was published in 2016 and was a New York Times notable book, one of Oprah's best books of the year, and won a Penn Hemingway Award. Her second novel, Transcendent Kingdom, was released in late 2020 and draws a lot on Yah's experience as the daughter of Ghanaian immigrants. Yeah, you know, I... uh these both of these books have been two of my favorites in recent years and i read them together <laughs> when we uh, started preparing for this interview and you know actually i would say both draw on yaz's background and you know she has this incredible backstory of being the child of ghanaian immigrants and Growing up in Alabama, of all places, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a, you know, in this very religious upbringing and trying to balance these two worlds. And she does all this incredible, incredible, incredible research, uh, which is really what drew me in. I mean, Homecoming, I would say, is almost comparable to Roots in its scope and its generational kind of passage of time. Whereas Transcendent Kingdom, the scientific knowledge behind that, you know, I, I found myself wondering like, oh, had she been pre-med? And, mm-hmm. you know, to find out that this was all just research, I think it brought an entirely new level to my understanding that even when we're spinning these kind of, you know, fictional narrative webs, this understanding of, of context and history and and research that you just don't often see in most fictional narratives, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, definitely. There's often an element, you know, that's the old adage, say, write what you know, which is mm-hmm. what Yah has done. But at the same time, she's built upon it richly with the level of in-depth research and work that she's put into both these novels. So yes. it was an illuminating conversation. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Hey, y'all. Welcome to It's Lit. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, this is just, I'm so excited for this program. So thank you so much for joining us today. As we do with all of our guests, we start with a little icebreaker. Since It's Lit, it's a podcast about Black books and writers. We like to start each episode by asking all our authors to name at least one book that they considered life-changing, life-affirming. It blew your mind. What was that book or books for you? Um, if I had to name just one, I would say Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, which I read when I was 17 and it completely changed the course of my life. Like I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but after I read that book, I was like, oh, I want to be this kind of a writer. Um, I want to mm. like walk in this woman's footsteps. And so it felt like the book that was like calling my name and it's still one of the most beautiful 
lyrical, intelligent, radical books that I've ever read. No, Toni Morrison's popular on this show. <laughs> Yo, I was about to say, Tony. Tony is the one who I think thus far has gotten the most shout outs. And I would admit that, you know, I, I can only speak for myself. Absolutely well-deserved and also the reason I want to be a writer. You know, like, she's the person who makes me want to get up every day and do what I do. So I'm right there with you. No, I totally agree. Like, mine was, uh, my game, ch- I had several game-changing books. Mm-hmm. But The Bluest Eye was among the, the game-changers for me, as well as Invisible Man. And autobiography of an ex-colored man. Like those were right. amazing ones for myself. And for me, it was Sula. Sula was, ah. the, was the tipping point for me. Amazing. So. You know, I think <laughs> most writers wish that they could have like just one perfect novel. And Toni Morrison has several. It's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, I don't know. You're on your way, man. Exactly. You're working your way to that. Like, I think you're, I think you're there. You can, you, you can totally do that. So, yeah, in your 2017 debut novel, Homegoing, you won a Penn Hemingway Award and an American Book Award, among other acclaim, when you were only 26 years old. I'm so jealous. Your second, Transcendent Kingdom, became an instant bestseller when it was released this September. What has that experience been like for you? It's been overwhelming in the best ways. You know, I... I always say writing a first novel, you feel like you're writing in the dark, unsure of whether or not your book will ever see the light of day. So the fact that Homegoing did see light and that the light was so bright uh, was more than I could have ever asked for. It was a book that I worked on for seven years, and it just felt like it took so much out of me to, to create. And so I've just been blown away by the reception that the book has gotten. But it did kind of it made me a little intimidated to start working on a second book. I didn't know what direction to turn in. I feel like as other writers have said, like you work your whole life to get to a first novel. And then afterwards you're like, okay, what now? And so it took me a while to get started. But once I dug my feet in, I felt like Transcendent Kingdom was a book that was just asking so many new things of me, asking new questions, stretching new muscles. And I am so grateful that people have been willing and excited to go with me in this new direction. You know, I I have to tell you, I, you used the word lyrical earlier. You were talking about Toni Morrison, and I would say the same about your writing. It is so easy to read and so musical. And as a songwriter, uh, which is me, you know, I understand that whole sophomore thing that, that like, okay, I've done the first album. Now what do I do thing? You know, but your first two books do have something really tremendous in common, which is that they both serve as this kind of diasporic bridge, right? Between Ghana and America in very different ways. And obviously this is reflective of your own identity and heritage, but I also found it really striking that your narratives parallel this disconnect that we see, we've even seen it recently on social media, between many Africans and African-Americans, which you've also spoken about feeling in, in previous interviews. And, you know, I think it plays out in various ways, you know, mutual admiration, awe, imitation, envy, longing, you know, resentment. And when I see these debates pop up online, I wonder how many would benefit from reading your novels because um, you kind of echo all of those dynamics in your writing. Is that something that you're doing deliberately is really trying to explore that tension? Yes, I think I'm doing it deliberately, but also it felt like inevitable that I would be exploring that tension just because it's something that I experienced so much and had a lot of confusion around when I was a child. Um, I was born in Ghana, but I grew up mostly in Alabama. 
And I always say that I wouldn't have written a book like Homegoing if I hadn't come from a country that had this role in the slave trade and then wound up in a state where the effects of this trade are still so strongly felt. It felt almost like this kind of irony that I wanted to tease out. But I was also raised in a predominantly white neighborhood with parents who were incredibly like pro-African, very much invested in their community, very much attempted to kind of make sure that we felt Ghanaian as much as possible, and not very well versed, I think, in the history of race in America. And so whenever my brothers and I had these kinds of questions about things that we were experiencing in our lives, they didn't really have good answers for us. Um, And I think it took a long time, and it took kind of the children leading the way um, for them to kind of understand the nuances of diaspora here and to start engaging with Blackness here. And I think that that slow shift was something that really informed all of, has informed all of my work. You know, I love that you you refer to the African-American diaspora because we don't usually, but we do have our own, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, one of my favorite lines in Transcendent Kingdom is when your, your protagonist, Gifty, says in reference to her African-American boyfriend, it annoyed me when he called Africa the motherland. It annoyed me that he felt close enough to it to do so. It was my motherland, my mother's land. And, you know, to me, that illustrated both the disconnect and distinction between being African and what we commonly call being Black, Mm -hmm. right? Do you think there's an appropriate way for us as Black Americans to refer to and relate to Africa? Well, I don't think that in that in that scenario that you're referring to in the book, I don't think that he was doing anything wrong. I think that the problem was with her, that she's like experiencing, she's kind of reflecting on, I think, her own personal issues, her own traumas around this place. The next line after she says it was my mother's land is something like she didn't feel close enough to it to call it that herself, to call it motherland herself. Mm -hmm. Her only relationship to Ghana is this trip that she takes when she's 11 that she takes under duress. Uh, She goes there because her mother isn't able to take care of her anymore. And so I think her relationship to the place is so fraught that when she hears her partner engaging with it in this kind of intimate way, she gets, she bristles. But I wouldn't say that that he is is at fault there. I think any way that he wanted to relate to the motherland is is well within his right. Um, I think she's the one who needs to do some examining in that moment. I mean, I'm 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 interested by that answer because I think that we really do romanticize Africa sometimes mm. here in America, um, which is why I was curious. But I also love that response because I think that we also have that that need to connect. It's a natural need. And I, I, it's been really interesting after publishing Homegoing. One of the most common responses that I've had from audience members is from people who have wanted to take trips back to Ghana, uh, people who have taken trips to the Cape Coast Castle, to Elmina Castle, to Gore Island um, in Senegal. Um, I think there's just been that kind of a response, that kind of need to to create these connections to the physical location was was not something that I was anticipating, but has moved me really deeply. And I think led me to understand that desire, not just to romanticize, but to feel some kind of physical connection to this place. No, definitely. I mean, growing up in the States, it was always fascinating to see people's responses to Africa who are Black. Like, it really ran the gamut from everything from, we used to be kings and queens, right. to 
people who are wholly ignorant at asking like my Nigerian American like classmate, like, have you ever seen a lion? And she's like, no. Yep. <laughs> like, what are we what are we doing right now? Yeah. Um, so it's oh, that that's always a fascinating discussion. But I want to pivot from that to talk about craft. Each of your first two novels involved an extensive amount of research, something that I'm actually doing right now as I write my own first novel. In Transcendent Kingdom, you take us into the mind of a neuroscientist, but in Homegoing, you concurrently chronicle eight generations of a lineage on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's comparable in scope to like the work of Alex Haley or Isabel Wilkerson. What compelled you to take such an ambitious approach to your first novel? Oh, yes. Um, Well, so I started homegoing via this research grant that I had gotten while I was in college to travel to Ghana and conduct research for a novel. And at the time, I thought I wanted to write something about a mother and her daughter. So my very poorly thought out idea was that I would go to my own mother's hometown, uh, which is in Cromantic close to Cape Coast, um, and just see if anything came up for me. Nothing did. And I was walking around feeling like I had wasted everybody's time and money and faith. And then my friend Stefan came to visit. He's a friend who I sang in an acapella group with that focused on music from the African and African-American diaspora. And so we had a lot of common interests. One is that he really wanted to go see the Cape Coast Castle, which I had never been to before. And so we went and it was while taking the tour that the tour guides give that I suddenly realized what I wanted to write about in such a visceral way. And I was keeping this journal of my days. And I remember when I got home the night of the castle visit, I wrote, I'm scared of how much research this novel is going to take. And, and I was right to be, to be scared of it. I mean, it was a, it was a project I think that in some ways I feel like I kind of bit off more than I can chew, uh, more than I could chew. But I think there is something so nice about just diving headfirst into something that is going to require you to kind of grow toward it. Um, so Homegoing was a novel that very much did that. I had to learn a little bit about a lot of different things. And I did have, you know, some grounding in this history. I had learned it in some form or another, but the amount of research that it took, um, the amount of time that it took was something that I think had I, had I fully grappled with that at the beginning of the project, I probably would not have written the book. Um, so it was nice to just dive in, uh, you know, and then look behind me afterward and realize how, how much had gone into that. No, definitely. I'm I'm having a similar moment with my own book. So I totally, totally understand the amount of research that goes into everything. Like, wow. Yeah. It's no small feat. And you mentioned, (laughs) I mean, you mentioned Isabel Wilkerson. And I think that book, uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, she said took her like 20 years. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 So conventional wisdom has always been to write what you know. I, I know I tell myself this all the time and don't listen for some reason, but there's tremendous value in research when writing fiction. How do you approach that process and what value have you found in it? I love researching to write fiction. I love writing writing about characters who are in situations or who are doing things that uh, have nothing to do with me. I think that's one of the pleasures of fiction writing is that you can use whatever tools that are available to you to create um, an entirely new world for Transcendent Kingdom 
I had to learn a lot about neuroscience, specifically optogenetics in neuroscience, and I had not taken a science class since college. So it was all new to me. But I think in that same way of being in college and learning something new and feeling those wrinkles on your brain start to develop and suddenly something new opens up to you. Like that's what this process felt like to me. It was just so interesting, so completely different from anything that I had ever spent my time thinking about. And I feel like one of the ways that the research works is sometimes you know what the story is going in and the research just feeds it. But other times the research creates the story. The research opens this pathway and suddenly you you see the story more clearly to give an example for for homegoing, I had this family tree that just had the the names of the characters, but then also the dates and the time, the something that might have been happening historically during each time period. Um, and for H's chapter, which happens in the middle, right after the Civil War, all I had written was H Reconstruction slash Jim Crow. Um, I didn't really know what else I wanted to write about, what that chapter was going to be about. I started writing a chapter that was about sharecropping in some way with a character who was working as a sharecropper. But then I started researching jobs that newly emancipated slaves would have had. And I stumbled on this excellent article that was in the Wall Street Journal by a writer named Douglas Blackman. And it was called From Alabama's Past, Capitalism Teamed with Racism to Create Cruel Partnership. It's a long title, but it was about convict leasing. And it followed a man named Green Cottenham, who was arrested for vagrancy and sentenced to work in these coal mines outside of Birmingham. And, you know, I hadn't been seeking that story out, but the research brought it to me. And then suddenly I, I knew what direction this chapter needed to take. And so I think there's, there's that, this push and pull between the research and the story that's really gratifying. You know, I actually want to double back to the fact I did not know that homegoing was originally intended to be about a mother and daughter. And, you know, I was fascinated by the fact that in Transcendent Kingdom, you were writing about really the intimacy and and the inextricable bond between mothers and daughters in a way that I'm sure resonated for not only me, but many other daughters. And you write... I, I know her only as she is defined against me in her role as my mother, <laughs> which <laughs> I say to my mother often, I, I you know, I, I sometimes forget that we're two different people. Um, what is it about that particular dynamic that fascinates you? Oh, there's just so much richness there. I mean, in, in our everyday lives, but also in the world of literature and film and music, like I think so many people have been grappling with what it means to be someone's daughter, what it means to be someone's mother, that it's a topic that I return to a lot when I'm in my own reading life and have enjoyed several books that, that tackle it. So I think that that's, that's where the interest kind of began. But yeah, I love the kind of thorniness of this particular relationship between Gifty and her mother, where they are so alike, but Gifty like can't recognize the ways that they are alike. 
And also they've somehow lost the language that they use to relate to each other. And so Gifty finds herself taking care of her mother. And at some point her mother says something like, do you still pray? Because that's all she wants from her daughter um, is to have her pray over her. And Gifty is considering whether to tell the truth or to lie. And that feels like it really encapsulates that the difficulty of their relationship is that they, they somehow they can't see each other quite clearly. It was a it was it was something that I think I've been circling around in my work for many years. And it was really nice to finally write a book that fully explored that theme. Yeah, that really mm. dovetails nicely into our my next question, which is about how addiction and mental health are also themes you explore uh, in your work and are at the core of Transcendent Kingdom, issues we can never address enough in the Black community. We can never talk about this stuff enough, to be honest. You specifically point out the conflict between Christianity and mental health and how that manifests for the evangelical African community. And I'd argue the African-American community as well. Gifty believes this doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. Do you believe we can reconcile the two? I do believe that we can reconcile the two. You know, like Gifty, I, I was raised in the church and raised in a church that didn't always kind of accept mental health issues as being medical issues, as being, you know, things that um, that required outside attention. It was kind of a personal thing between you and your family or between you and God. And I think that there are some kind of pros to thinking about things that way. There's a study that I mention in the novel that came out in 2015, and it was about how schizophrenics in India, Ghana, and America related to the voices that they were hearing differently. In India and Ghana, the schizophrenics recognized the voices as the voices of family, as the voice of God, and they had far better relationships to their schizophrenia than the Americans who recognize the voices as violent, as intrusive, as harsh. And that, to me, I think kind of touches on this idea that you don't have to pathologize the illness. You can have a community-minded response to the illness while still recognizing that sometimes people need more help. And Gifty's mother is a character, I think, who is not at this place yet where she's willing to say, I need a little more help. But as we read the novel and as we see Gifty, who herself is a scientist, who herself is given to thinking about these issues from the perspective of, of health and, and medicine, kind of try to draw her mother out and to respond to her mother in a nuanced way, in a community-minded way, in a way that was sensitive to her mother's beliefs. And I think that element is really important, too. You can't just throw one out completely you have to kind of try to approach it from from a place of understanding where the where the person is coming from as well. I I love that response and and you know there is a way forward here that I think that you're offering. You know, similarly, you address the conflict between science and spirituality in this book. You write, I grew up around people who were distrustful of science, who thought of it as a cunning trick to rob them of their faith and that really struck home for me because it felt very central to our current American political conversation <laughs> and conflict. And, you know, obviously you grew up in the seat of, you know, not only where the slave trade in large part landed, but also the civil rights movement, right? And growing up in the South, growing up in the religious tradition, like if the, you know, has your own relationship to faith changed as a result? Mm. 
It has changed. You know, I should preface this by saying I like Gifty. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and I attended a predominantly white church. And as I grew older, I just couldn't really reconcile my faith with some of the political teachings that were being espoused at my church, which was very much part of the religious right. Um, just incredibly, incredibly regressive in a lot of ways. Um, and my family was never like that. My family was always trying to kind of complicate the things that we were learning at church with their own lessons at home. My parents were, um, you know, my dad was always adamant in teaching us that the religion that we were practicing, we wouldn't have been practicing if it hadn't been for colonialism. So what does that mean? And so I think I, I had I had a good way of kind of complicating the the narratives that I was receiving at church. But as I grew older, I started to kind of distance myself from the church because of my inability to reconcile it with my faith, um, reconcile the teachings with my faith. But uh, I recently I read this headline that said something like there is no religious left in America, which, of course, was written by a white person because we all know there is a religious left, but it's the black church. And one exercise that I that I am given to doing, not just for myself, but for Gifty in this book is thinking, what would my life have been like if I had grown up in a black church, if I had seen the fact that your religious faith and your ideals your drive toward justice could be uh, something that go hand in hand. I think it would have made a lot of difference to me as a child when I was confused about a lot of things. It would have helped a lot. So I'm, I'm sensitive to people who are, who are approaching the issues of the day armed with their faith. Um, I think it is possible to have both, to have it all. It doesn't have to be either or. Well, that's, that's incredible. I totally agree. Um, of course, with two tremendous novels already published within three years, it might be premature to ask, but, you know, we got to know. Are, we got to know. <laughs> are you already <laughs> considering what issues or themes you might want to explore in your next book? <laughs> um, yeah, I have already started thinking about what comes next. Um but I will say one that I'm a little superstitious about talking about books okay, when they're uh, still so new. And two, I found for both of these books that what I thought the book was at the beginning was so different than what the book ended up being that it always feels like anything I say in the early phases will prove to be a lie by the time the book comes <laughs> out. So um, so something is is happening, but I'm not yet sure what it is. Well, I'm positive that it will be absolutely incredible. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. And it's lit. This was such an illuminating discussion of the craft, and we greatly appreciate absolutely. it. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and Maisha Kai on Instagram. 
And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you getting into these days? So I'm not actually, I, I'm actually rereading something uh, <laughs> that I read last fall. Uh, do you remember The Craft, the movie The Craft from, yes. uh, I guess it was an, okay, so... Last fall, uh, Rachel True, you know, the black witch (laughs) from that movie, uh, we got the chance to interview her and she put out a tarot deck, um, which has been a part of her life forever. In fact, you know, she talks about the fact that when she did the craft, she was already very invested in, you know, she was very familiar, I should say, with the occult, you know, and occult isn't necessarily a bad word or a bad thing. And tarot cards were actually part of her practice then. And so... Here we are, decades later. I mean, there's been a reboot of the craft recently. And she put out the True Heart Intuitive Tarot set, which is both a set of cards and this kind of incredible guidebook that both guides you through the deck and is kind of like her own Hollywood memoir. But I, you know, I interviewed her about this. We talked about it. I read the book. And now I'm actually getting into the cards. because I feel like it's a new year and, you know, we're all trying to welcome a new energy. And I'm really kind of reaching outside of my comfort zone to get into a little more mysticism in my world. So that is what I have been doing and reading. And it's really fascinating. I'll have to tell you what's in the cards It does later. sound fascinating. You know, <laughs> like you I own like a, a goofy, like fake tarot deck that sometimes I fiddle around with. But yeah, that sounds extremely fascinating. Okay. I love it that you also have a tarot deck because now we can really get into this together. And meanwhile, did you know that Miss Cleo has a, that there's like a Miss Cleo tarot deck out there? No, I had no idea. Wow. I totally, I totally bought it on Amazon because I'm ah. free. But <laughs> what are you reading? Well, I read this book that um, was sent to me years ago. It's been sitting on my bookshelf for a very long time that I have not cracked open until recently because I realized it was important research for my own book. Uh, The book is called Island People, the Caribbean and the World, and it's author Joshua Jelly Shapiro's effort to try to write a history of the Caribbean. That's a rich history. I mean, yes. I mean, that's its own diaspora. So (laughs) (laughs) that's I mean, I mean, are you loving it? Are you into it? It's a heavy read, but it's fascinating. I'm actually I can't wait to read your book. I'm like very excited about this. Yeah, it's got a lot of elements, you know, that I'm researching. So (laughs) it's a lot of fun. And that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. We will be here next week. And until then, keep it lit.